have the privilege of speaking today on the topic of harvest. I want to talk about harvest. It's, um, it's a word I haven't been able to get out of my heart and spirit lately. And um, as 2019 begins to kind of wind towards its end, I've been thinking a lot, as probably many of you have, about 2020, what the year will bring and what it's about. And you might know, if you've been connected to Liberty for a little while, you might know that for many years we had what we called the 2020 vision for our church. So the backstory to that is God had begun speaking to my wife Andy and I when we lived in Sydney, Australia as far back as 2005 about planting a church and we prayed into that and thought about that. We were living in Sydney, Australia at the time with three little kids. Uh, in fact, when he first spoke to us, we just had one who, uh, who was a baby at the time, who's now 14. And over a period of years, we prayed about that, came to New York for the first time uh, to say, God, is this you? Are we supposed to plant a church here in 2009? And we heard his voice. And, and then when I realized we would move to New York to begin what today is uh, Liberty Church, in, I realized we're going to move in 2010. And I re distinctly remember the moment when I thought, man, our 10th anniversary of living in New York will be the year 2020, which seemed like a million miles away at that point. Uh, and I felt in my heart, as clear as anything, when I thought 2020, I got it in my spirit, we're going to have a 2020 vision as a church. And what that always meant for us um, was that we were going to believe by the grace of God that, that we would impact 10 communities in 10 years by the year 2020. What that meant for us is we were going to be a church planting church. We were going to be a sending church. Uh, we wanted, you know, that didn't have to all be Liberty Church communities. We were pretty clear on that right from the beginning. We're not trying to build an empire. We're trying to build his kingdom. So we felt like there would be more Liberty communities, and there are. We thought they would probably be in other cities, and, and they were. And we were, you know, so we're, by the grace of God, London, that launched just two months ago, was the ninth Liberty Church community that we planted. But the story that doesn't get told as often is we've also sent five other couples who between them have started 12 brand new daughter churches as well. So praise God, that 2020 vision has sort of long since been accomplished. But you know, as I feel 2020 coming, and it sort of feels like a significant number too, I guess, in some way. I, you know, I've never really been one to kind of like a lot of churches uh, kind of name the year every year. You know, there's always a banner over the year and a name for the year, but you know, I've never really been one to do that, but this year I felt differently. I felt so clearly um, that, we, that we are to declare the year of harvest over 2020 as a church, the year of harvest. In fact, I want to prophesy that, not only over us collectively as a church, for Liberty Church, but over your family and over your life personally. I, I believe 2020 is to be a year of harvest for you. You see, harvest is a promise. God designed the world to run on the principles of sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, this principle of, of harvest. And, and really the law of harvest should be a reminder for us. In some ways, it's a promise, uh, it, but it should also be a reminder for us to consider what we sow, right? Because all at once, it's a promise to hold on to and potentially a little warning shot across the bow as well, depending on what we're sowing, right? Since it's clear that we will in fact reap what we've sown. Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 7 to 10 says this. I want to read from the New Living Translation. It'll be up here on the screen. It says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the God of justice. You will always harvest what you plant. I just want to let that sink in for a minute. You will always harvest what you plant. I think it's the NIV translation is you reap what you sow, which is probably the more famous phrasing of that in English. 
Verse 8 unpacks a little bit. What is this sowing and reaping? It says, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. That's where they've sown. Those who live to, to please the Spirit of God will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit of God. And then verse 9, I love this encouragement. Let's, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And I like, oftentimes, you know, when I've quoted that scripture, I've stopped there. But I think verse 10, in the context of what we're speaking about today, is important too. It says, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. It seems to me that Paul, writing to the church, the Galatian church, is saying, hey, it's all about harvest, and we ought to be mindful of what we sow because we reap it. We ought not to grow weary in doing good, another translation says, for in due season, there is a due season for every harvest, right? We will reap if we don't, if we don't give up. And then he says, it's almost like he pivots to say, and remember, more than anything, when we talk about harvest, we're talking about people. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone. And that ought to be especially true in the family of faith, Amen that we are doing good to one another, that we don't just live for ourselves, our own sinful natures and reap that harvest, but we would live for the Spirit of God and believe that in due season we would reap a harvest. For me, to be specific, the year of harvest, when I think of that phrase, I'm thinking about people. When I think about the year of harvest, of course, the principle of sowing and reaping is true in every area of life, but when I think about harvest in the kingdom, I think more than anything about people. I think about souls think about the good news of Jesus, I think about the beauty of his salvation. And, and you know, it's, Jesus makes it pretty clear in the scripture that, that, that the problem, if there is a problem, if we feel like, well, where's the harvest and what's happening around me or in my life, in my community, the problem isn't the harvest. It says in Matthew 9, 35 to 38, speaking of the ministry of Jesus, it says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So what's he doing? Teaching, proclaiming, healing. And the message that Jesus is bearing, this is important because we are bearers of this message too, is good news. Actually, the word gospel literally means good news. So we are supposed to be bearers of good news for people in our communities that are hurting or feel lost or feel like uh, the, the, they have no voice or no place. Like this is good news. The message of Jesus is good news of the kingdom. Listen to this. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I, I noticed, by the way, that Jesus makes it clear he's Lord of the harvest because where are we sending the workers? Into his harvest field. God is at work. That's apparent to me. Even when I'm not paying attention, even when I didn't see he was at work in my life, I can look back now and say he went before me, he's gone beside me, and he's going behind me. He is. Even when I sleep, he works. He, that, that's just who he is. He cares for hurting people. So it's his harvest field. But it's interesting to me, I think, Three things were to come out of this passage to me. One is that we need to remember it's good news. Sometimes I think the church would do well to remember it's good news, everybody. Good news that Jesus brings. Number two 
is it reminds me that compassion should be our motive. This is a big challenge. I want to spend just a moment on this. Compassion should be our motive. It says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And why is that? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' feeling toward the crowd is important because this tells you something about the heart of God toward our world. His motive. You know, his, his feeling toward them was a feeling of, of compassion. In fact, the Bible often records in the, in the four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it often says Jesus was moved with compassion. I think that, I've always felt that that phrase is significant because every time the Bible says that, Jesus didn't just feel something, he, he did something. He was moved with compassion. He would heal the sick, he raise the dead, he'd step into brokenness and bring wholeness because that's who he is. So compassion moved Jesus. But I guess the challenge is, is does compassion move me? Yeah. Is compassion how I feel? Because to be honest, let's just pause for a minute. If you know something of the scriptures, you know that Jesus had a very interesting set of experiences with crowds. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, he had to leave heaven and come to earth because of the crowd. I mean, he was on a good thing. And he put that aside, fully God, but then became fully man, a man of sorrows, embraced suffering, was sinless and yet crucified in order, on behalf of the crowd. In fact, while dying for us, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I mean, incredible compassion. You know, on one occasion, the Gospels record that his cousin John the Baptist is beheaded and uh, Jesus goes away to gr grieve, but the crowd finds him. That's what, they're good at that. The crowd finds him. And even in his grief and his sorrow and his desire to just pull aside with the Father, he's moved with compassion and ministers to them, even in those moments. The crowds would be the ones when Jesus entered Jerusalem one last time toward the end, on the way into town. The crowds lined the streets and yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a week later, crucify him crucify him. And yet in spite of all of that, and Jesus being fully God for knew all of this, Jesus has compassion on crowds. That's, that's mind-blowing to me, that that's his response. What's my heart response? What's yours to crowds though? Do we have that heart of compassion, the heart of God in us toward the crowd? Or is my response more kind of judgment toward the crowd? Or is my response insecurity? Or is my response worry? Is my response perhaps just apathy? You do you. I'm busy with my life over here. Jesus had compassion. The third thing it shows me is that the problem isn't the harvest. The problem is the lack of workers. What does Jesus ask us to pray for? He says, the harvest is plentiful, everybody. The harvest is plentiful, but workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. By the way, I like the word workers here because all of us are qualified. <laughs> he didn't say send out preachers. He didn't say send out leaders. He didn't define, there was no personality type. Send out introverts or extroverts. or No, no, no. We all, it wasn't men or women. It was just workers. Anybody who can roll up their sleeves and say, God put me to work in the field was qualified for the mission. You know, I spent several days, uh, the week before last, in California with the um, Brethren Men Mennonite denomination. Amazing. I had a, a friend that I'd gotten to connect with, got an incredible church in Fresno, and I got to celebrate with hundreds of churches from the West Coast uh, in their denomination. And, you know, one of the things that was beautiful to me about the spirit of their movement, because every movement has a different emphasis and 
they're, they're preaching Jesus and the word of God. But one of the things that stood out to me, you know when you have fresh eyes on a movement? One of the things that I notice they ask all the time, in every speaker, every panel, all their testimonies from church planners, they would ask this question, how are you seeing people come to Christ in your community right now? It's like they had a laser focus on the purpose of the church that we were to be seeing people. Now, in all different ways. I mean, the ways people were coming to Christ were as diverse as the communities that people were in. I mean, one of the guys stood up and shared how he's in a, a neighborhood which is, I think, over 80% uh, Mormon LDS uh, community on the, on the outskirts of Salt Lake City and how people were finding hope in Jesus in his community. It looked totally different than somebody else from Portland, Oregon. And yet, it was clear to me that people were finding faith in Jesus. And at the end of one of these sessions where again they asked that question, I was so challenged. I was there to be like a mentor and a guest speaker. I was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they said, you know, we'd like you to take a moment now for prayer and reflection. And so the, the team were quiet and I can still feel it now. This conviction fell upon me and I started to think not about anything for church, it wasn't about any strategy. Faces and names started coming to my mind that are in my world right now that as far as I know, don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And it wasn't condemnation. There's a difference, right? This wasn't just feeling bad or guilt. No, this is a conviction of the Holy Spirit that it's like, I have people in my life that I have authentic relationship with, that we do life with, from restaurant owners to crossing guards to teachers and soccer coaches, neighbors and friends and extended family. I started to think to myself, have I really shared the good news of what Jesus has done in my life with them? Have, have I taken that opportunity to say, could I pray for you? Is there anything I can stand with you and believe for in your life? Would you ever think about joining me at church sometime? Is there anything we can do to serve you? I, I was so convicted. I started writing down just this list of names, praying for them on the spot. And... Um, and then I just I came to a place where I was like, you know what, I'm going to tell the church. I'm calling myself to account. 2020 is my year. I'm going to do whatever I can. Of course, people have free will. And so I'm not trying to arm twist or guilt trip anybody. But in as much as it's up to me, 2020 is the year where I do what's within my power to do for 50 people in my world. To hear the good news or to experience service from the church service as in serving by all means come to a service and experience something on a sunday but i i feel so convicted in fact i'm going to spend in january we do 21 days of prayer and fasting every year my conviction is i'm spending my 21 days this year because usually i pray for me miracles for me things i want for me and it's not, it's not wrong to draw near to god and believe for breakthrough in my life but i'm turning it outward this year i'm going to spend 21 days praying every day by name for people in my world that i know need healing or miracles or breakthrough or salvation so jesus makes it clear that that's his mission yeah just a couple of quick scriptures on this i mean one would be hebrews 12 2 where it says fixing our eyes on jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith listen for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, people is what we're talking about here. He endured the cross for what? For the, for the joy. The joy set before him. The why of all of this. The why of forgive them, they know what, not what they're doing. The, the, the Messiah that could see his own mother standing in the crowd as, as he gave his life on our behalf and would make sure she was taken care of by one of the other disciples. Could you get any more selfless than that at that moment? That's the joy 
It was, it was all about people. Jesus makes it clear that his focus is on lost and hurting people. In fact, Luke 9, 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's like his mission statement. This is what I'm here to do. I think it's the New King James. He says, to seek and to save that which was lost. That was, that was his reason. Mark 10, 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. This is incredible, by the way, because if anybody deserves to be served or could demand being served, it's going to be the Lord himself. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' purpose, a ransom. In other words, he paid for our freedom. He paid the ransom with his body, with his blood, that we could be sons and daughters of the living God, free. It's incredible. So I've been pondering these scriptures, and one more I'm going to share in a moment. I've been reflecting on them. In our staff meetings on Tuesdays, everybody dials in from around the world. I've been, I guess, preaching about this, sharing from my heart about this. And and it seemed like, to me, it was no coincidence that literally within, I think, a day of sharing this with the staff, I got an Instagram message from an old friend who I hadn't heard from in 25 years. So I had met him many moons ago. Uh, he, he'd, come, he'd come into a youth center where I was a social worker. He was 13, uh, met Jesus, got plugged into a church, and I discipled him over about three or four years from the age of 13 to 16. I was like 20, maybe 21 towards the end there. And I uh, really poured into him. And then out of nowhere, for no reason that I could discern, One week he just took a right turn and never came back. In fact, I never even found out why until this week. It'd been a series of conversations where people are like, you're a a fake, you you gotta go out there and find out who you really are. So he thought, maybe I should. And 25 years later, he reaches out to me on Instagram. 25 years, he's 40 now, that makes me officially old. Uh, He reaches out to me, now married and three beautiful kids. And I get this message on Instagram out of the blue while I'm wrestling with this call. Just keep on making sure that it's all about people. And he says to me, I'm thinking about coming back. I figured you're my guy. Can we talk? (laughs) 25 years. So we did talk. Last weekend, I had the privilege of preaching at a friend's church, also called Liberty Church, but they're the originals. I told them, you're the OG. We're like the copycats in New York. They've been there like 50 years in Pensacola, Florida, right? Amazing church. I was preaching at their church, but they had me staying at this place and I, I took a walk and I talked to my friend for over an hour on the phone. He told me, by the way, that my accent's changed. Ah, (laughs) I'm in no man's land now. I sound kind of Australian to Americans and American to Australians. I don't know what that makes me anymore, but I actually, I have both citizenships, so maybe that's fine. I'm I'm blended. But I walked with him, a hybrid. There you go. That sounds fancy. Thanks. I appreciate the rescue. Ah, But I talked to him and you know what really stood out to me is that God's been at work these 25 years when it was not apparent to me. When I thought... I'll tell you this, I, I, gotta, I want to be vulnerable right now. I, I remember how I felt when he left, when he, when he walked away. I remember, and honestly looking back, I realized some of it was my immaturity, but I cared so deeply about him and following Jesus that I wept. I just, I wept, I sobbed, I was broken. And I felt like a failure, which of course was my immaturity because 
Looking back, I'm like, well, I can't, I can't save people. We already have a Messiah. Good news. It's not me. Ah! And we can get that Messiah complex where we've got to take it on ourselves to save the world. And there's a, ba- a balance here of caring, but entrusting people. And people have a free will. Uh, I was still figuring that bit out. But I remember weeping. And actually, I remember saying out loud to God, I'll never do that again. I guess I'm just not cut out for this. That's the best I know how to do. That's the best discipleship I ever did. And he walked away. And I remember the, the father, the clearest impression, just saying to me, it's okay, Paul, go again. I'm glad that I did, because it all might look very different if I had given up on discipleship 20 year, 25 years ago, right? I don't know if we would be where we are today. But then I walked and talked with him. And he said, he said I still remember the power of God. I remember what it felt like. He said to me, do you remember that time I got healed? I said, not really. He said, I had all those spots all over my neck and you prayed for me and they instantly went away. He said, I missed that. I missed the power of God. And we had this amazing, redemptive, beautiful conversation. And then it turns out he'd moved to a different city in Australia. And I was like, you know, I think an old mentor of mine might have planted a church campus near you. And it turns out that she had. Darlene and Mark Check had planted a campus of their church, uh, Hope Unlimited, in the town that he lives in. And so... I mean, last he said to me on Instagram, he was going with his wife and kids to church on the other side of the planet today. And I am reminded God cares deeply. See, I see in John 4 a beautiful story of Jesus playing out one of these kinds of stories. In a kind of unlikely situation, to be honest, uh, I won't read the whole chapter for sake of time, but the backstory is there's a bad, kind of there's bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews, honestly, which is why the famous story of the Good Samaritan was kind of controversial because uh, Jesus is giving, you know, giving credit and honor to a people that the Jews really kind of look down on, like the kind of forgotten cousins, you know, and it's interesting because there's, there's some shared history there with these people and Jesus is cutting through their territory and he goes by a well that Jacob had dug you know, centuries, generations before. And the scripture records that he's tired and he's hungry. So he sits by the well and the disciples go into town to get food. Well, then as Jesus is sitting there, a Samaritan woman comes up to the well. And it's an interesting thing because, well, Samaritans and Jews don't really talk to each other, but Jesus talks to her. And he says, you know, could you get me some water? And then they have this conversation which is, which is countercultural on so many levels. Not only the Samaritans and Jews, but a man would talk to a woman, let alone a rabbi in this circumstance. And so the conversation starts out very in the natural. It's about water. And then Jesus, because he's masterful and just who he is, turns the conversation to be about living water. If you got living water, you would never thirst again. She's like, where do I get this living water? Of course, he is the living water, but she, you know, she's still on this journey, right? Figuring it out. He's tired and he's hungry, but he's got time for her. And he has this conversation that doesn't start with deep theology, but it sure gets there because she cuts right to the bit where the conversation with Jews would usually break down for them about the proper place to worship. They had this old debate that had gone back for generations and Jesus elevates the whole conversation. There's a time coming when those who worship will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's like, it's not about that. And then Jesus in his, you know, Jesus in his wisdom says to her, oh, go and get your husband. He already knows the answer because he's God. And she's like, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, you speak rightly. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. She's like, whoa, okay, prophet. And she realizes, wait. And then she starts to talk about that they've been waiting for the one. So she has a, a sense like, you know what? My friend last weekend kind of called his homing beacon. That sense of him that was, there was something missing, something that was drawing him all these years, drawing him home. 
to hope in Jesus, but, but, but she says, we've been waiting for the one, and then Jesus reveals himself, and you know, I mean, really as plainly as I see him ever reveal himself, who he is, that he is in fact the Messiah, he does it right here. With her of all people, in this circumstance of all places in John chapter 4 verse 26, Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is kind of powerful because a lot of times at this point in the gospel, Jesus is kind of cryptic. People are trying to work it out and Jesus is asking questions like, who do people say that I am? But in this instance, he puts it all on the line. Just to be clear, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And it says, just then the disciples return and we're surprised to find him talking with a woman. This is the first indication they are going to completely miss the point. This is, I mean, this, is, this is hard to watch, actually. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Right? But they're thinking it, and they've at least learned to not say it out loud because they are masters of putting their feet in their mouths. But they don't say it, but that's what they're thinking. They're missing the point. Why are you talking to her? What do you want? And then it says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town and, and said to the people, listen to this, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So she's on fire now. She's like become an evangelist, you know? She's run back into town. Everybody, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Unless it was a much longer conversation than the Bible records. Like, like that's, that's probably not exactly what happened here, right? Everything I ever did, I don't know, but she's on fire. She can't help. She just wants people to come see this Jesus. And they said they came out of the town and made their way toward him. But listen, meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. <laughs> this is hard. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? This is painful. Is this painful or what? It's like Jesus having revival over here and they're like, food. Did someone say food? Are we talking about food still? Yeah. Okay. And then Jesus, he's being kind. He kind of keeps with the theme. He's like trying to elevate the conversation though. He's like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I tell you, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits for their labor. So I read this passage, it's easy to be critical of the disciples, but I find myself in them. That's the hard, painful truth to admit. If you take a note, some of the questions I've been pondering would include, am I too busy with the things of this world to stay connected to God and what he's doing in the lives of others? Am I too busy? Too busy with the things of this world. The food was the disciples' stumbling block, but it could be anything. Am I too busy with the things of this world to stay connected to God and what he's doing in the lives of others? They missed it. It's easy to be critical of the disciples, but how many times have I just missed it? What Jesus was doing right there, so to speak, right next to me. And I'm on completely the wrong level of thinking altogether. Thinking about the natural while he's working the supernatural. Thinking about myself while he just wants me to get my eyes off me for a minute and be an instrument in his, in his hands to help somebody else. Second question I ask myself is, are my biases blinding me to what God is doing? 
It's impossible to know why the disciples missed this, but I can offer you a couple of possible reasons that they missed it. I I can't peer into their souls and know why they missed it. They genuinely just might have been hungry and having a bad day. Hey, we've all been there. Hangry is a real thing. But, But could I suppose that they might have missed it because she was a Samaritan? Is that why they missed it? Because they didn't expect God to move through Samaritans, let alone have good Samaritans. Maybe that's, well, maybe they missed it because she's a woman. And in their culture and in their day, I don't, well, maybe they, maybe it's, I mean, it's possible, less likely, but possible they know her reputation. That she's had a checkered past and a difficult life. And it would seem if you were trying to pick somebody that was going to be the town evangelist, maybe you wouldn't have picked her. Or a woman at all in her day. I don't know. I don't know what the bias of the disciples would have been that could have gotten in the way of them seeing what God was doing. But it seems to me she's like hands down one of the best evangelists in the Bible. Because even while they're over there like, have something to eat. Did someone bring him food when we weren't watching? While they're doing that, she's bringing the whole town to Jesus. That's amazing to me. See, our response should be like the woman, come see. But our response is actually often some version of, I'm hungry. And that's challenging, isn't it? She's saying, come see. She's a bringer. The whole town is pouring out. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that Jesus is using the crowd pouring out from the town as the visual metaphor. So when he's saying, lift up your eyes and see the fields white for harvest, he's not talking about a a wheat field or some other kind of natural field. No, he's literally talking about a sea of people coming out from the town that moments after this verse would say, Now we believe because we have seen. They would come to a saving faith in Jesus of themselves as a result of her being a bringer. We're all qualified to be workers, amen? It's possible to be with Jesus but miss the point. I have a friend, Mike Kai, who pastors an amazing church in Hawaii. And uh, I saw him teach pastors just recently. I, I think it's just worth spending a moment or two on this. He was teaching pastors and challenging them about, about who the church is for and to remember who is in, in the church. He calls them seat one, seat two, and seat three. And the way the analogy went was that he said every, every church should be reaching people who are in seat one, which would be people who are seeking. Like my friend back in Australia, people who would right now maybe say, you know, I, I don't know if I believe in God, but I'm open, I'm interested, I'm kicking the tires, I, I'm around, like I'm, I'm interested in talking about this, I'm wrestling with some things, I'm looking for something. That would be what, what he would call people in seat one. And every church needs to be reaching people who are still figuring out what that looks like for them. If they even want a relationship with God, that's what he would call seat, seat one. Seat two is what he would call like the, the growing believer, kind of people who've they've, they've crossed the line, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and they're just, they're pumped. People in, in seat two are oftentimes the people who want to be at everything, serve on every team. They're the people who can't help but share their faith because it's just like, it's new and it's fresh and it bubbles out in every conversation. It's like, you know what I mean? People are like, oh, do you want to get a sandwich? Speaking of sandwiches, have I told you about Jesus? It's like, there's no segue, right? They're pumped. That's, that's what, when you're, in, when you're in seat two, it's like the faith is new. You're reading your Bible. Your life is changing and not because somebody's telling you, you got to do this, but it's because the life of God in you is causing you to change from the inside out. Seat one, seat two. And then he said, seat three is what you could call the mature believers. Now, mature is subjective and he acknowledges that. It's like, hey, it's not like you reach a point where it's like, check, I'm done growing now. No, the rest of our lives, that's a journey. But there is a certain point. 
at which you reach some maturity. You understand some things in God. You, you're going to finish your race. And, and then, and then he, he makes the comment, every church needs people here, mature believers who can share with those who are st- still seeking or those who are newer in the faith that can, out of a life well lived and testimonies of the power of God and wisdom that comes only kind of from the years, seat number three is an important place, but he adds this challenge. Mike, Mike said, we've got to be careful as a church because it's easy as pastors to build the whole church with seat three in mind. To only look to seat three. In fact, one of the challenges for those who are in seat three is that it's easy here if we don't guard our hearts to become complacent. It's easy here to say, serve me. It's easy here actually to become critical. Sometimes you experience that as a pastor is that the biggest criticism doesn't come from people outside that hate the church, but sometimes the people that have been around a while, if we're not careful, we can be the ones that get jaded and get negative and the church should this and the church should that. And you know, we don't have to go down that path. Mike's challenge was if, if you find yourself blessed to be in seat three where you've been following the Lord many years, that this mission would seem to suggest that what we do in seat three is get up out of our seat and say, how can I serve? Lord, send me out into the harvest. How can I help those that are on a journey and seeking? How, how can I serve those that are new and passionate in their faith and I can bring a little strength and prayer and wisdom to their journey? We've all got to be on mission. You know, the, the values of our church is love, truth, freedom, family, but we just can't forget about others. We can't forget about others. We are a family, but we're a family that's all about others. Everybody along this journey, they all matter to God. Whatever stage, whatever seat you would even identify yourself with today, you matter to God and you matter to our church. I pray for us that we're going to see more people than ever before in our lives and even in our Sunday services crossing these lines to become followers of Jesus Christ and all that is in him. Maybe I could close out by sharing a few thoughts that I've been challenging myself with. You know, one thing that I've been challenged about is out in the lounge after every service, we have these little business cards, invitation cards. And we don't print them for us because we're already here. (laughs) We print them for those in your world that if you were to write a list of names like I started to write last week, would be people that you know, maybe in your classes, at your work, on your block, in your building, people that you see at the bus stop that, that right now need the good news that perhaps you are a carrier of today. I've just determined that next year I'm not leaving my house empty-handed anymore. I'm going to be intentional about being ready for those moments. Second thing you could consider, for those of you maybe really call Liberty Church home and you've been around for a while, is could I implore you? Could I... Could I beg you to consider leading a community group next season, which will kick off, you know, we'll, we'll, the sign-ups for leadership will start in a couple of weeks here and they'll, they'll kick off in late January. Could you, would you consider doing a group that's for outreach and evangelism? Maybe it's dinner parties. Maybe it's community service projects right here in South Brooklyn where you could just love on people. And be the hands and feet of Jesus. Maybe you'd even pick up a curriculum like HTB developed in London called Alpha that millions of people have done around the world and found faith, including Bear Grylls, got saved because of the Alpha program. Maybe, maybe that would be your thing. I don't know. I just pray that our church would create spaces. If the church is a house, the house needs a porch. 
Spaces where people can be around the church without having to go all in, which can be scary depending on your background and your experiences, right? Places where they can connect with you, the people and the family of God, build a friendship and cross a line. As the team come join me, let me read one last scripture and then I'm going to pray. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess and believe.